Hey everybody, uh, based on this most recent class survey, uh, trying to get ready for the, your upcoming exam, one of the biggest things everybody seemed to mention as far as not being comfortable was with was reviewing a WPS based on what the PQR content is. So I'm going to ramble on about a few things. Uh, you're not, they may or, you know, may or may not be code specific, but just some concepts I want you to keep in your mind and be aware of. You know, one of the, one of the key concepts that you need to think about is that concept or that, that terminology of essential variable. The majority of codes refer to that, and it's typically going to be one of those variables that if you change the range beyond what's allowed by the code, you're going to have to requalify the procedure. And when I'm speaking about requalifying the procedure, that's in the context, of course, of procedures qualified by testing. And that means you have to run another plate, pipe, test assembly, whatever it may be, and record the variables that you use. And after that's tested and inspected, all the verification requirements are done, then you can write a WPS off of that PQR using that PQR as the basis. It doesn't have to match the PQR normally, it just has to use ranges that are within what's allowed by the code. So let's just say my code specifically says as an essential variable, amperage can vary plus or minus 10%. So if I weld with 100 amps on my PQR, then my WPS can say 90 amps to 110 amps. So keep those, you know, keep those variable ranges in mind when you are doing PQR. Make sure that you select a variable uh, value that's going to give you what you need for your production WPS. And so many of the essential variables are listed in the tables in AWS D1.1. I believe it's table 4.5. And as you go through those variables, realize a couple things. Whenever you record the variables on a PQR, each one of those will just listed in table 4.5 needs to be, be recorded. What you're doing. The, the information that you put on the PQR, in my opinion, can never be too much. Okay, anything that you can record about the joint, the welding sequence, even if it's not required. Every bit of information that you could record that could make it easier for somebody to use that PQR again to write another WPS is helpful. The, the WPS that you prepare, you know, we've talked about this concept a little bit before, it can have a couple of purposes. One of them can just be to give to somebody and say, here, we comply with the code, here's our WPS, and it's fully qualified and matches the PQR. So there's one concept. Another concept is making it a document that's useful for the welder. I've recently been involved with a AWS D17.1 welder qualification test, and the organization didn't have a WPS. They were able to get one from their company, which is a company that's well known in the, in the aerospace world. And that document, in my opinion, is pretty much useless. And it does meet the requirements of the code that it was written to at the time it was written. It was a, you know, quite a few additions back of B17.1. But as far as giving any information to the welder, it, it's of no value, in my opinion. Okay? It's, it's just a document that's qualified. 
you know, doesn't mean that that company can't successfully keep making their product using it. They know how to do it. They have the subject matter expertise, that kind of stuff. But as far as someone coming in new and having to start from scratch, that WPS doesn't tell them very much at all. So have that concept in mind if you get to the point as an inspector or as a welding professional in your company. You have to prepare WPSs. You know, you can make them to keep all the QC folks happy while we're sitting around talking about, well, I spent the day reviewing WPSs because I'm so smart. Or you can make it where it's useful for the guy that's out there on the shop floor that wants to know whether it makes a difference, whether he sharpens his tungsten to 60 degrees or to, you know, 40 degrees. That kind of information can be useful. Not always, but sometimes it can. Sometimes, you know, the most useful thing is the, <clears throat> at the welding, at the point of welding, it's going to be the knowledge and ability of that welder. A good welder with a bad WPS is a, is a lot more valuable than the other way around. So as you're reviewing, you know, look through that, that table 4.5 and make sure that you understand the terminology that's in there as far as when you have to requalify the procedure. Yeah, there's, a, there's a few things that are a little bit more difficult to understand than those, but for the most part, it's pretty straightforward. I'm hoping to, within the next day or two, to have some, some WPS PQRs that you can look at. Uh, tonight, we'll probably use, I've got three copies of the book of exhibits, not three copies, three of the actual book of exhibits. And we'll probably double up and let everybody go through those and see what they can find wrong with WPS. It's not with any questions. Just look at them, look at the PQR. Look at S and say this variable's you know incorrect based on the requirements of the book of specifications or the requirements of B1.1. So hopefully that'll be kind of what we do tonight. We give everybody an opportunity to kind of get a little bit more uh, a little bit more experience with that specific part of welding inspection. You know the other the other part that's semi-related to that when it comes to paperwork is reviewing a welder performance qualification record. The nice thing about the welder performance qualification records is that normally they are, they have the values that are used during the test and the qualified ranges on one form. You know, but there's typically only, you know, there's very few variables for welder qualification testing. There's quite a few variables for welder procedure, for welding procedure qualification testing. That's why it takes multiple documents. But there is nothing that would prohibit you from putting everything on, on one document and joining it together. It's just not typical. You know, one, one procedure qualification record could support many different WPSs just if you wanted to tighten up those values in certain cases. So you could have one, one procedure that's qualified based on testing for, you know, quarter-inch material to two-inch thick material, for instance. But the settings that you use for welding the quarter-inch material may not be the same as the two inch material. You can split it up if you wanted to. Yeah, you could have, you know, WPS broke up with different uh, different electrical parameters, travel speed, preheat requirements, and all that stuff on multiple different on multiple documents. Or you can have it all in one. Whereas with you know welder qualification record, they use one set of variables during the test and they're qualified for one set of branches after that. It can all fit on one document pretty easily. Another thing I want to throw in that I've preached before, the welder uses the WPS when he takes the test, but a welder is not qualified to use a specific WPS. 
Okay. A welder could be qualified for just one very, very small range on a WPS, but he couldn't use that WPS just because it's qualified. He tested using it. An example would be is you, I, I give somebody a test using a WPS that's qualified to weld groove joints with or without backing that are from 3 sixteenths to 2 inches thick. I use that WPS to give the welder a test on some 3 8 plate with backing. That welder is qualified to use that WPS, but he's only qualified to use it with backing up to 3 quarters of an inch thick. Okay, but based on most of the rules, you know, I'm talking off the top of my head, so you know, don't be thinking that's the, the magic rule is always going to be two times the amount of thickness. It just happens to occur that way quite a bit. The main point is the welder can use that WPS no matter what range is on it, as long as the welding that he's doing is within one of those ranges. He could also use a lot of other WPSs. So be careful about that concept of this welder is qualified to use this WPS. If that WPS's range is outside of that welder's qualification range, he is not qualified to use that as a blanket statement. You've got to look at the at the requirements for the specific joint that's being made. Again, the, the thought is the welder has to be qualified for the joint that's being made in production, and the WPS has to be qualified for the joint that's being made in production. What ranges are outside of that joint that's being actually welded on are completely irrelevant. They don't matter. So that's a couple of concepts about the welder or the the welder particular qualification stuff. I'm sure there's some more I can think about. You know, one of the things you're going to have to do uh, during your exam and in real life if you're verifying a PQR was properly documented is calculate those cross-sectional areas, figure out how to convert the, uh, the units or the, the yield stress that's applied to a specimen or the, the tensile stress applied to a specimen and what that converts to as far as unit stress what the ultimate load is versus what the load is per unit. Again, a one inch square bar, I pull it apart, take 60,000 pounds, 60,000 pounds per square inch. But I have a bar that's one inch wide and a half inch thick, and it takes 60,000 pounds to pull it apart. It's only a half a square inch of cross-sectional area. It's gonna be 120,000 pounds per square inch. Anyway, so, you know, brush up on those concepts. We'll look at some paperwork tonight, possibly. I've got some additional uh, plastic weld replicas that, uh, you know, you may be able to get your head around a little bit more of actual hands-on inspection with the tools, which is a few things, you know, some of the things that some folks indicated they wanted to do a little bit more of. So hopefully tonight will be a good class for you. Y'all have a good day. And <clears throat> be careful. Everybody, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the terminology that's used in relationship to welder procedure and performance qualification testing. Uh, kind of general statements, but things that you should be aware of and look for. Uh, one of the issues that we've had in the past is on a quiz question regarding the good old weld metal analysis A number. That A number terminology is used across a couple of different codes. For AWS D1.1, it's, uh, don't believe it's in there. ASME section nine, it is in there. 
AWS Book of Specifications is talked about in there. But in general, when it's talked about, it talks about it is it is a number that's used to designate slight chemical differences in uh, ferrous alloys. And those are materials that essentially are some type of steel. That could be plain carbon steel, steel that's got a half percent, two percent molybdenum in it, chromoly steel, high strength low alloy steel that's been quenched and tempered. Those steels can, because there are some, they're still steel, but because there are considerable differences in weld metal chemistry, they're assigned a specific A number. A 300 series stainless steel has its own A number. One of the reasons for that is that some of those materials do not weld together using some of the other materials. If I weld two pieces of 300 series stainless steel together with carbon steel, plain carbon, it's not going to do well. It's just all that there is to it. It may stick, kinda, and again, it may not. But it's not what's you know it's not what's intended to weld with. So if we were to just use the F number concept, uh, it's possible that I could have some I could have some problems because E one ten eighteen, for instance, is F number four. F number three would be a good material to weld on high strength low alloy steel with. So kind of keep that, that number in your mind, be aware of it. If it doesn't, doesn't show up in every code, it's not essential. You know, AWS T1.1 kind of takes care of it by giving you the recommended filler metal specifically for the basement group. So that information is in clause three, I believe, kind of let you know for this filler metal. Here's what you match it to. Another term is test position. Now everybody knows about or heard about 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, the miraculous qualify everything in the world, 6G, I'm the best welder ever. Understand that those are just test position designations. Those are not production weld positions. The production welding positions that a welder welds in are either flat, horizontal, vertical, or overhead. A welder making a production weld does not make a 3G weld. That terminology is used to designate the test position. In some codes, the, <clears throat> the test position is actually designated as to how much it can vary and the, the actual welding position is something else. You know, vertical, for instance, is the vertical welding position is not just straight up and down. It's got some variation in which it can tilt back, it can tilt forward, it can tilt forward in the axis of the weld to rotate. Okay, that's all the vertical position. The 3G position, in some codes, it doesn't state any kind of allowance. It just is, says vertical. Well, for me personally, when I test the welder, I mean, it's placed vertical. If I look at it, it looks like it's leaning back. It's not in the code book for me. I'm just telling them, make it vertical. Well, I've been having myself tested, or I've been taking tests for years, and the inspector always let me lean it back five degrees, ten degrees. Well, I don't know where that's at. Okay, as far as D1.1 goes. Maybe some other codes that do, you know, do allow that. I'll have to look it up someday. But be aware of the difference between those positions that are designated as test positions and actual production positions. You know, don't be the don't be the guy that writes the report up saying that he observed the welder 
welding on the steel in the 3G position. Don't be that. Don't be that person. Uh, another, you know, another concept is progression. Progression only applies to welding that's done in the vertical position or in the 3G test position or in the 5G pipe position where the portion of the weld is considered vertical. It's uphill or downhill. Be aware of that terminology. The, the testing requirements that are in a specific code should be reviewed before you start doing the, the test. A couple of reasons for that. Out some codes, they will specify how big a test plate or a test pipe has got to be. Some codes, they may not. You want to make sure that you can get all of your specimens that are required out of that plate. You know, there are certain codes that I can take a seven inch long weld and weld it up and qualify a welding procedure using that just seven inches of weld. I can get all of the, <clears throat> the bend specimens out of there that I need and I can get all of the tensile specimens out of there that I need. I would only need impact specimens if impact values were part of the procedure qualification. Some codes may, may require additional testing. They may require macros. They may require nick break tests. They may require a whole lot of other things. So that's where just take a look at the code that you're working to and review all the requirements before you get start, started reviewing a welding procedure or welding qualification record. You know, one of the things that happens oftentimes is when people fill out a PQR or a WPS or a welder qualification record, is they put information on there that doesn't apply necessarily to the range of qualification. Now, on the, on the columns or on the records that record what I actually did, I will put that on there. So let's just say, for instance, on a welder qualification record, the material used was A36 Group 2. So that's what I used during the test. That's good information though. That's great information to have recorded. When I go over there to his qualified range, I am not going to put A36 group two. I'm going to look in the specific code. We'll use D1.1 as an example. And I will put all of the weld, all of the base metals that he's qualified to use based on the rules for the welder. Well, in D1.1, well, qualification variables do not include base metal type. So essentially all of the steels that are listed in AWS D1.1, that welder is qualified for. Okay, another example is filler metal. I will put in the filler metal classification of E7018. That welder will be qualified to use all of the shielded metal arc welding electrodes that are allowed by D1.1 for steel. Now F numbers, same thing. F numbers going to be F number four. They're going to be qualified for F number one, two, three, and four. I wouldn't want to just transfer over the F number four only because that would limit that welder to what he's qualified to do based on the paperwork. So keep an eye on the variables and the allowed ranges. My, my practice and what I suggest doing is for variables that do not 
have an allowable range by the code, which means they, they don't apply. You could use anything. Either mark them NA, or you could put on there as allowed by blah blah blah, whatever the code is, that kind of stuff. Don't limit don't limit the welder's qualification range based on not knowing what to put over there in the in the column for the range of qualification. And the same thing goes for WPS. Okay, you, for a WPS for a specific material, you use a certain material that WPS is going to be qualified for a wider range of material than what you just use on the test normally. Make sure that you allow that. If you want to. And I mean there may be cases where hey I'm gonna I'm gonna test this on you know A572 grade 60 and that's all we want to use WPS for. That's fine. You can you can restrict it if you want to. You know, place additional restrictions on it. But just keep in mind what you write down there. Me, the inspector, I'm bound to assure that that's what's followed. I don't care if it's silly or wrong. Doesn't matter. Because that piece of paperwork that you have for that welder says that he can only weld with, you know, super duper widget rods. Then he better just be using super duper widget rods when I come up to him. Of course, I better be able to look on that WPS that supports that same job, and I better be able to see super duper widget rods on there too. But keeping, you know, keeping those concepts in mind about the the actual ranges used during the test and what the welder is qualified for or what the procedure is qualified for can help keep you from making too many mistakes on, on reviewing that type of documentation. You know, sometimes the, the variables that are listed for WPSs can be pretty pretty wide ranging, difficult to follow. You just got to take the time, read them, ask some questions. You know, you'll always be able to call me if you want to, but uh, understand that I'm by no means the uh, the expert of all things welding. My, my world is limited to the world according to Gerald. It's been known to be wrong before. Uh, but take a look at some documentation. And take a look at the clause for welding procedure qualification and welder performance qualification D1.1. And go back, look at the rules that are in. Uh, the AWS book specifications, you'll notice that they're very abridged, they're very short, a lot of stuff not addressed. That's okay. That's just a practice book for, you know, for taking the, the AWS hands-on test. I'd like to see it where when they gave you the hands-on test, you actually just used your code book and did all of your inspections. Then also had references to multiple code books. You know, actually have a real API 1104, have a real ASME Section 9 and B311 and test you to multiple documents at one time as opposed to the, the pretend made up code. But when I have the Gerald Weldon Society, I can do that. AWS has been doing a pretty good job of, uh, of, of helping the welding industry throughout the years, so uh, who am I to say that they're not doing it the best way possible? I think they're uh, pretty good group as far as interested in welding stuff goes. Anyway, y'all have a good day. That'll do it for now. Take care. Hey everybody, I'm going to go ahead and go through some statements that are in AWS D1.1. Just make some commentary on them about WPSs, PQRs, that kind of stuff. You know, one of the things you need to understand is, you know, what is a pre-qualified WPS? Okay, Pre-qualified means it's exempt from the testing that's in Clause 4. So Clause 3 has all of the requirements essentially for writing a pre-qualified WPS. <clears throat> if, you, if you have variables that come outside of the range of Clause 3, 
you're going to have to qualify that WPS by testing. Okay. There's only a certain number of, w, of welding processes that are pre-qualified. Okay. GMAW, FCAW, SMAW, Those are all pre-qualified. Subarc, SAW. GTAW is not pre-qualified. Electroslag, electric gas welding, not pre-qualified. GMAW with short circuit transfer is not pre-qualified. Okay. So to follow the rules or to, you know, to cover the requirements for pre-qualified WPS, one of the first things you got to do is make sure the base metal and filler metal combinations match. <clears throat> there are tables in D1.1, table 3.1, 3.2 that list what materials can be used in a pre-qualified WPS. If those materials are not listed, they can't be used. Okay, there's requirements for matching those base metals to filler metal combinations. Make sure that those match. Okay, I recently just had a, a little project where two pieces of A36 were to be joined together using E81T1NI2. Those are not matching base metals and filler metals. Okay, uh, 81T1NI2 is, is a higher strength filler metal than A36. There's allowances in the code for dissimilar strength base metals. Well, A36 may be to 572, grade 60, that type of stuff. But there is no allowance in there for overmatching the filler metal strength. So that WPS was not qualified. You know, the other other thing you've got to think about, uh, besides the base metals and the filler metals, are all of the other variables that are required. Okay. Those requirements are covered in the table in AWSD 1.1, and they're also kind of talked about in Clause 3.7, General WPS Requirements. Not every variable is going to apply to every process necessarily. You know, voltage, for instance, is not something that you would set normally for SMAW. So it's not a it's not a variable. It could be NA. Make sure you're aware of what those specific tables say. Uh, preheat interpass temperature requirements. Those are listed in clause three for what you have to do. Table 3.3 tells you what the minimum preheat and interpass temperature is for, you know, for the steels in the code. Make sure that you meet those requirements. Understand that they vary on thickness. You know, actually the general requirements talk about vertical up. Uphill welding is the only thing that's qualified in the vertical position or pre-qualified. If you're on a weld downhill, you got to qualify your procedure, except for the fact that you can fix undercut going downhill. Uh, but understand that, uh, that allowance, I still have to have a qualified welder. I don't find any allowance for the welder to be qualified downhill to fix undercut only. So though you're, though you're allowed to repair undercut downhill with a pre-qualified WPS, you better have your welder qualified. Well, how's your welder going to get qualified? Uh, I guess he could repair some undercut downhill on his procedure, his welder performance qualification test. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know about that one being valid, to be honest with you. You just have to think on that one on your own. There's a width to depth paths uh, ratio, okay, that's, that's limited. 
you know, very, very deep, narrow groove can be very prone to centerline cracking. So it's, it's restricted. There's some requirements for weathering steel. Weathering steel, if you don't know what it is, is a type of steel that is, uh, when it's exposed to the atmosphere, will oxidize in a way that's a little bit better controlled, won't rust as deep and pit. Uh, A242 is a, is a type of weathering steel, some of the A588s, that kind of stuff. All those things are in clause, uh, you know, 3.7, 3.8, 3 3.9. Read through those, see what they say. There are requirements that are process specific, and there's there's requirements that are joint type specific. You'll read through there. Uh, Three point eleven common requirements for PJP and CJP groove welds. Be familiar with what they say. Uh, post weld heat treatment. Okay, post weld heat treatment shall be pre qualified, provided that it is approved by the engineer and the following conditions are met. Engineer has got to approve it whether you're post-weld heat treated or not. Let's see what else. Oh, for, for CJP groove welds. Open root CJP groove welds are not pre-qualified for, for plate. There are some allowances for using backing besides, you know, other than steel. Read what those are. So <clears throat> back to table, you know, table 3.1 that lists the base metals for pre-qualified WPS is the way that thing is laid out. Over on the left-hand side is the group number, Roman numeral 1, for instance. The steel specifications, most of them are ASTM specs. And to the right of the steel specification, if there's a grade involved or some other factor to determine what it is, it's over there, next column on the right. Um, yield point, strength. KSI, look at the A36 for instance, 36,000 KSI, which is 36,000 pounds per square inch. I'm sorry, 36 KSI is 36,000 pounds per square inch, not sure how I said that. But that's the yield point, that's the point at which it begins to stretch the tensile test or the tensile tensile range for it is anywhere from 58 to 80 ksi be familiar with what all that all that information means in the table take a look at your footnotes if any exist uh, if you go to the end of the table 3.1 take a look at the footnotes Read through all of them. Okay, just to know what they say, get it in your brain that there is some information there. Do the same thing in the book of specifications. You know, just just go through and read footnotes. Don't memorize every one of them. But that may be a flag that, that you know there's something in there about that. So if you go to table 3.2, the filler metals for matching strength. Groups one, two, three, and four materials, SMAW and SAW. Very first table, or very first page in the table. You go to the next page, it swaps over to processes for FCAW. 
So if you notice, for instance, over there, base metal group one, over to the right, it lists all of the filler metals. It comes. The X's are used to indicate cables. Okay. If you look at the one under GMAW for ER70S-X, that X could be four, five, six, whatever numbers are in the uh, filler metal specification. Scroll down to the group two materials. That's what the material was that I was using for the welder qualification test I was talking about earlier. Look over there at FCAW, the only material that's allowed. 5.20 carbon steel E7XT-X. Notice that there's no 8 allowed there. A5.29 Noella steel, same thing, E7XTX-X. No 8 is allowed. I've got some footnotes. Note A. Talk about filler metal groups. Looking through it, doesn't anything, nothing in that footnote that allows me to use ADAT or ADS. Excuse me. E81T1NI2. Reading through the rest of the footnotes, I don't see anything that allows me to use E81T1NI2 as a pre-qualified filler metal for A36 one-inch thick. Table 3.3, the pre-qualified minimum preheat interpass temperature. You notice it's got categories over there to the left. Category A, B, so on and so forth. That information for the category can be determined by what you're welding. So if I look over there to, on the very first page, a53 grade B welding process, SMAW with other than low hydrogen electrodes. If I'm not if I'm using low hydrogen electrodes, category A does not apply. So let's see about category B. A53 grade B, SMAW with low hydrogen electrodes. Now I see what I'm, you know, I've got my right filler metal. Eighth inch to three quarters at the top. 32 degrees minimum preheat and it looks like I got a footnote A. When the base metal temperature is below 32, the base metal shall be preheated to a minimum of 70 degrees. Minimum interpass temperature shall be maintained during weld. So if I was verifying that a pre-qualified WPS was correct as far as preheat goes, that's where I'd go. Table 3, start there. Okay. I would also read paragraph 3.5, which is referenced in the heading. 3.4, or table 3.4, I was talking about the weathering steels. There are some of the filler metal requirements for that. So, you know, you can, <clears throat> you can take the code book without having any, any questions or study materials or anything and just read through it. Uh, you know, find a topic, study on it. You know, Table 3.6 is a good one to, to address. It's the pre-qualified WPS requirements. 
tells me right there that for maximum electrode diameter for SMAW for flat root pass is three sixteenths of an inch. Ooh, for subarc it's quarter inch. And for GMAWFCAW it's one eighth of an inch. So a lot of information in the code book. Anyway, if you get a chance, read through it. Write some questions down. Let me know the, the parts that you're not quite understanding about pre-qualified WPSs. Have a good one. Hey, everybody. I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about the, uh, the WPS PQR review that we did on using the book specifications tonight. You know, I know that, uh, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time using WPSs and PQRs other than what we did in AWSD 1.1. We've reviewed some of the requirements of the book specification, but actually never got out any any real documents. So now that we've got the got down here to our last couple of weeks, we're going to have the opportunity to look at actual WPS and DQRs that are based on the AWS book of exhibits, but in a different format, some slight differences to them. But these documents don't let them overwhelm you. Okay, don't let them confuse you because they might say something that you've never thought about before as a welder. Uh, they just say what they say. Don't get uh, don't get any preconceived notions about what they should be or shouldn't be. You know, I know as we as we develop at welders, we learn things off the top of our head. Like I know that E seventy one T one welds with DC electrode positive. Okay, I know that. Period. But I can't let that interfere with with me reviewing a WPS that says it says it's qualified for DC electrode negative. The only way I can say that WPS is wrong is to go back to the PQR and see what was used. And in the case of the one that we reviewed tonight, it was DC electrode positive, just like it's supposed to be. But now I've got to take the rules that are in the applicable code, which is in table A, and see if there's anything in there that tells me that if I change the polarity, I have to requalify my procedure or qualify an additional procedure. And if you look through all of Table 8, you won't find polarity as an issue. Okay, it's not in there. Therefore, the WPS, be it a good or a bad WPS, is qualified properly. So, you know, kind of keep that that in your mind as you go through these. Don't let don't let what you know is right as a welder interfere with what a code allows on a document. Okay, the overall concept in my mind about about a WPS being good for the job is this: the WPS has to work for the joint that's being welded. Okay, I've got to look at the joint configuration, <clears throat> the base metals, filler metals that are being used in production make sure that WPS matches what's being done in real life. So that's one level of WPS verification. Okay, just making sure the WPS matches what's being done on the job and the WPS is being followed. But then another level that sometimes happens outside of the, my role as a regular inspector is to verify that the WPS is properly qualified. In the case of what we're doing in the book of specifications, it's all in clause five. And for me to verify that the WPS is correct, there's a few tables I've got to look at in there, but I might as well read through the whole clause. 
But for the most part, the variables are in table 8. They would require requalification if they change. And the variables that are in table 6 are the variables that should be addressed documents. And when I say addressed on the documents, I mean they should be listed on the side of that process. And they should be listed on the PQR if they apply to that process. And so, you know, when I say apply to that process, for instance, the uh, if you look in table 6, uh, shielding gas composition, I believe, is listed in there. But it doesn't apply to SMAW. So, I don't necessarily have to put a shielding gas on my WPS. It would be NA. Nor do I have to put it on my PQR. It would also be NA. But I want to make sure all of the variables that are required by the specific code are documented on both the PQR and the WPS. Once those, once those variables are documented, then the next thing that I would have to do is verify that they are qualified to the correct range. So let's just say that my procedure qualification test was done on some M number one, group number one material, but my WPS said that it was good to be used on M number two, group number one material. Sounds kind of funny, but for me to prove it, I'm going to have to go to the good old table eight, look at the base metal requirements and see what it says about different M numbers. Okay, there's a couple of different rules in there. I think there's some, some requirements in there about, you know, <clears throat> M numbers to higher and lower number, bimetallic wells, that kind of stuff. I don't know what it says, okay, so don't, don't worry about that. The main thing is I've got to go back and look at what the rules of the code allow for me to write on the WPS. The PQR is that document that records what I did while I tested it. And then my WPS is the document that allows me to utilize the rules of the code to maximize the ranges. You know, I may weld up a PQR with 122 amps with E7018. But I'm not going to do all of my production welds with exactly 122 amps, am I? So I'm going to use the rules of the code and put my amperage in there, whatever range I think is suitable or is qualified. Um, since amperage isn't a variable, I can put anything I want to in there as far as the book specifications, the way it goes. But you understand what I'm saying. The procedure qualification has actual values in it, and the WPS has qualified ranges. On a welder qualification record, it's essentially both of those kind of variables in one document normally. You know, we've got the two columns that we reviewed when we looked at the requirements of D1.1. The actual variables go on the left, the qualified ranges go on the right. You can kind of think of that as the same process that happens with a PQR essentially. Is you've got some variables that are tested, and you've got some ranges that you're qualified or your WPS is qualified for. So I uploaded the three WPSs to the Moodle site, and there are three supporting PQRs. I sent a link out uh, using the messaging on there. If you didn't get them, holler at me. <clears throat> I'll try to send them out by text message too. But anyway, you know, there's things in there that you can do to get yourself a little bit more comfortable with the process. Now, when you do the, the CWI exam, you're not going to be required to review 
entire WPS and look at the geek you are. Okay, that's not going to be what they're not going to give you one of these and tell me, hey, write down everything that's wrong with this WPS. They're going to give you specific questions about specific variables and specific scenarios. And you're going to have to kind of pick out what you've got to look up. <clears throat> but between now and the class on Thursday, what I would like for you to do is take those WPSs and PQRs that I uploaded, print them out if possible, or just use them as PDFs, and look at the WPS, select a variable just like we did tonight, look at what that actual value was on the PQR, and then go, to, go find the applicable rule that's in Clause 5 and verify that the range that was written on the WPS is in accordance with what's allowed to be written on the WPS based on what's on the procedure qualification record. Uh, another thing that you'll have to review if you're reviewing PQRs and WPS to make sure that they were properly done are the tensile test values. And we talked a little bit about tonight, the rectangular tensile test specimen. You've got to get the cross-sectional area first, which is going to be the length times the width. That's going to give you the cross-sectional area in inches or in square millimeters, square inches or in square millimeters, depending on the units that you use. Uh, you know, we're just going to talk on inches, and that's probably going to, that's going to be all that's on your test, I'm pretty sure. Uh, <clears throat> the need to, uh, to verify that's important. Okay, the one that we looked at tonight, for instance, you know, everybody calculated the unit stress based on the cross-sectional area and the load, so we were coming up with slightly different numbers. And the reason for that is because of rounding. You know, the original, the original length and width were three decimal places. If I multiply two three decimal place numbers to each other, I can come up with an answer just as many as six decimal places. But that gets rounded down to the original three decimal places. So that causes a little bit of a rounding error. But I want to make sure the cross-sectional area is correct. I can multiply the length times the width, and that will give me the actual cross-sectional area. And I can store that number, and then I can take the actual load that was applied and divide it by the actual cross-sectional number cross-sectional area, and that will give me the actual full, you know, most precision as far as the ultimate tensile strength goes. But you don't have to do that. I mean, if, you know, don't don't get too hung up on the rounding. The answers that you have on the test should be wide-ranging enough that, that you are not going to have a rounding error. Uh, you, you may very well have a one decimal place type error stuff. But the uh, you know don't let the don't let the WPS and PQRs overwhelm you. We're gonna we're gonna talk about them a little bit more on Thursday night. We're gonna start looking at the uh, welder performance qualification records and requirements in Clause Six of the book of specifications. And then hopefully over the weekend you'll study up, get ready on Monday. I'm going to, I'm hoping to have an exam ready for you. Okay, it's just going to be internal to us, but it is going to be something that's going to go on your certificate. Uh, we're going to have a fundamentals portion, a practical portion, and an open book code portion. It's not going to be the CWI exam. It's just going to be for this class to kind of see how you, know, see how you did. We will probably do the fundamentals portion 
in the open book code portion electronically, and I'll probably do a paper uh, practical exam. Again, like I said, well, you know, because we have different replica types, uh, you know, we may limit those actual hands-on measuring things. But, but you know, in reality, that shouldn't be a problem. You know, if you have if you have a problem and don't understand the concept of using color inspection tools, then you need to holler at. Them. You know, before the uh, before the exam next week, I'm gonna be, you know I'll be up here for Friday for Thursday morning, and I'll be up here for Friday morning. We want to get together and just talk and, and go over what's gonna be. Any, any items that you're not comfortable with, I suggest not cramming the test Friday night. If you don't know it by if you don't know it by by next Monday, okay, then there's probably not a whole lot we can do. You know, I don't want I don't want to discourage you, but as far as class to class time, now if you don't know it by Monday and you buckle down and start studying some, yeah, you can definitely you know do better. But what I'm talking about is relations meet a couple times. The main thing we can do is just see, you know, I think us getting together will bump your score up and help you. But if you're just feeling like you're completely lost and you haven't been paying attention in class and you think just showing up was the you know was the key, you know me, I can't help you, I can't work that miracle. But if you know what you need to learn better <laughs> sorry. If you know what you need to, to reinforce or a little bit more about it, you've got some questions, you've got to, you've got to contact me, let me know about it. And you can feel free to text me or call me or email me or send me a fax or a telegraph, I don't care. But, you know, I think, I think everybody's going to do, do pretty well. I think that it's, if you let the fear of it being a test get to you, it can make it pretty hard. You know, no matter what you score, nobody can take away the fact that you've learned a lot of stuff in these hundred plus hours, and that you're better at it now than you were before. So, <clears throat> you know, don't don't sweat it. They can't take your birthday away. Uh, blame the instructor. Hey, this is my first class I ever taught. The only thing I know is what is is that I've I've made you have the ability to do well in inspection a little bit better. If I didn't teach you how to pass the CWI exam, that's understandable. Okay, but I think you got it. That's just all there is to it. I think I think that we've covered the material. I think that it's <clears throat> deeply ingrained in you, where you will probably not have to to panic as much. And some, you know, and when you see some of the questions, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the fundamentals, but. Next week, all you got to worry about is the book specifications. From here on out, or not from here on out, from here until next Saturday, that's all you got to worry about. So unless you get bothered by studying the book specifications too much and you just need to relax your mind, just just stay on the book specifications. If you do get a little stressed out, I'm tired of looking at junk, then you know bust open good old well inspection technology book and just you know read a few paragraphs here and there. I used to like to just randomly open, just stick my finger in the side of my welding inspection, not my welding inspection technology, in my AWS welding handbook, and just and just open it up to a section and just start reading. It was, it was uh, interesting, even if it was something that I had never read before, or hadn't retained, or never used. 
I'm just going to force myself through this. Anyway, that's it. It's been 15 minutes to be running my yapper. Hopefully y'all are either sleeping or studying. But I'm heading back to good old Greenville. And I'll see you Thursday. And if you have any questions again, holler at me. Take care. Hey everybody, going to talk to you a little bit more about the old, good old AWS book of specifications and procedure uh, qualification. Nothing major, just little things to keep in your mind. The, you know, the table six is the list of items that have got to be on your WPS and your PQR. So those are items that are required to be addressed. <clears throat> now in some cases they may not apply. But if they do apply, they need to be filled in. On, in the case of the WPS, you may have a range that you can fill those in. In the case of the PQR, you'd use the actual variables. Where do you get the range from? You get the range from the information that's in Table 8, for the most part. There's some exceptions to that, where some thickness and position stuff is addressed in other parts. But in Table 8, if you go down through each one of those variables, it will, it will give you conditions. But if those conditions change beyond what's stated, you have to qualify another procedure. Okay? It has to be requalified. That's not a you know, that's not something that's unusual or unique or I mean unique to book specifications. That's kind of common among many codes. There are variables that have to be addressed on the documents, and there's variables that if you change them beyond the specified range have to be requalified. Okay, that's AWSD 1.1, API 11.04, ASME section 9, AWSB 2.1, all of those books, specifications, codes, whatever you want to call them, have got rules for qualification of welding procedures. And you've got to follow those rules. Okay, there's no need to memorize the rules that are in the book of specifications. It's pretty short. But it's good to know what table 6, what table 7, and what table 8 cover for you. Okay, table 7 kind of covers the base metal thickness qualified based upon the thickness of your test coupon and it also lists the deposit weld metal thickness over there in the right hand column. So once you have those tables in your mind of, of what they cover, deciding whether a variable is listed on a WPS is within the range that's allowed by what was done on the PQR is a little bit easier. Again, there's a couple items you'll have to read through the text. It's in the beginning of Clause 5. But Clause 5 is not that long. It shouldn't take you long to read through it, you know, just to get familiar with it. As you read through it, if you come across things you're not familiar with, not comfortable with interpreting, you got to holler at me. Okay, make, make me work for a, make me work for this. The, the whole process of verifying a WPS matches a PQR valid based on this PQR is, I said, pretty much across most codes. Now, there are some codes that allow the good old pre-qualified WPS, which is D11 and Clause 3. But we're not worrying about that for the, for the book of specification stuff. That book of specification is going to be the last time you'll probably ever use it unless you get into teaching or helping some of your, some of your co-workers or friends become a, a skilled at passing the old AWS Part B test. You'll never see that thing again. But hopefully, the concept of you learning how to use it will help you use other codes that you've never seen before. Okay. It's not a matter of, you know, we've got all these things in the AWS CWI 
<clears throat> program about endorsements where it says, you know, you're endorsed to do this or you're endorsed to do that because you've used so-and-so code. And those are all fine. It's great things for your resume. But any CWI should be able to take a code that they've never touched before and get pretty familiar with it and learn how to navigate it and have the understanding that if they don't know something, they're going to have to find out from somebody that does. Okay. Sometimes the wording in the code is, is vague. Sometimes it's difficult to interpret. You know, I've been looking at these code books off and on for years, and I run across stuff that I just don't understand. The book of specifications is pretty straightforward and simple, but because it's something that's new to you, it can, it can be a pretty good challenge. So the more time you spend in it, thinking about it, looking at it, comparing things, <clears throat> the better off you are. You know, don't, don't overload yourself with, hey, I've got to read this thing through X amount of times. But, but, you know, have it there for some good old casual reading and crack it open every once in a while and read something. As you read it more and more and you begin to think about it, you'll start to, you know, you start to see it in a little bit different light. Anyway, so this is nothing majorly different from the one I did last night, but uh, I'm driving into work and I figured I'd tell you all about it. Y'all have a good day. All right, everybody, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm not uh, not talking from the Subaru. It's not going to sound nearly as good. But what we're going to do, or what I'm going to do, uh, even though I've mentioned I would never do this to you, is I'm going to read through uh, the words that are in a document. Uh, this might be useful for you if you're driving back and forth. <clears throat> and I'm going to make some commentary also on it, but what I'm going to do is read through Clause 5. And Obviously, like with the tables and stuff like that, it may be a little bit harder to you know, explain what's on the table, but you can follow along or you look at it when you get get to the point where you can get the <clears throat> So we're going to start off with Clause 5. 5.1, Welding Procedure Specification Data. Table 6 indicates the welding data to be included in a WPS for each welding process. WPS may be presented in any format, written or tabular, provided the data written in Table 6 is included, are included. A suggested WPS format appears in Annex 7. The WPS may list variables recorded on the PQR within the full range permitted for qualification variables <clears throat> and for practical limits determined by the welding organization for other welding data. So when you go down there below, you see Table 6. Okay, Essentially, that's WPS data matrix is data that has to be on the WPS. Okay, So I'll read through some of them. If you notice, if you look across, that there's X's underneath each welding process. Uh, I'll go ahead and note any that are not X'd when we get to them, but the first one is joint type and dimensions. It's got to be on there. Treatment of the backside method of gouging and preparation is number two. Number three, backing material if used. <clears throat> 5.12, base metal. M number and group number. The thickness range that's qualified. The diameter the coding description or type if it's present. 5.13, filler metals, specification, classification, F and A number, or if not classified, nominal composition. Weld metal thickness by process and filler metal classification. Filler metal size and diameter. Penetration enhancing flux, that one only applies to GTAW. There's a flux that's used that you can apply to stainless steel that will affect the, the weld puddle and it will make it penetrate a little bit deeper. You can do a little bit thicker square groove welds, for instance, uh, using that penetration enhancing flux. 
Supplemental filler metal only applies to FCAW, GMAW, and GTAW. That's a, a second filler metal that may be fed into the puddle. But that doesn't count taking some nine wire and, and beating it off and sticking it in your puddle with some 6010, in case you was wondering. <clears throat> Consumable insert and type. Consumable insert only applies to GTAW. Uh, it's a pre-placed ring that actually goes between the, the edges of a pipe that's been beveled. And you just go over it with the TIG torch and that allows that, that piece of material actually becomes the root. It's not a backing ring, it's not a chill ring. It is a consumable insert, meaning it's consumed into the weld root. <clears throat> and then energized filler metal hot also only applies to GTAW. That process is called hot wire GTAW. There's also a cold wire GTAW. With the hot wire version of it, the filler metal that's fed in supplementally to the puddle is actually electrically energized. So there's some resistance that goes into that. Next section for the table is position. Welding positions, progression for the vertical welding. Next thing is preheat, interpass temperature. Your preheat, minimum preheat's gotta be on there. Interpass temperature, preheat maintenance for heat treatment, post-weld heat treatment, temperature and time has to be on there. <clears throat> the next one, shielding gas. Obviously it doesn't apply to SMAW, but it does for the other ones, the torque shielding gas and the flow rate range. And then for uh, GTAW, it only lists the root shielding gas and flow rate range. It doesn't list a root shielding gas for GMAW or FCAW. Electrical is the current or the wire feed speed, current type and polarity. For the wire fed processes, oftentimes you have the option of either controlling the wire feed speed or the amperage. The voltage range, listed up there for GMAW, GTAW, FCAW, but not for SMAW. <clears throat> and there's an exception there, it says except for manual welding. So in the case of uh, GTAW and GMAW and FCAW, it wouldn't apply, except for the fact that GMAW and FCAW are semi-automatic processes. They're not manual. Okay. <clears throat> so your voltage range has got to be addressed for FCAW and GMAW no matter what, because it is not a manual process. But for GTAW, it is. But in the cases of mechanized or uh, automatic GTAW voltage range would have to be addressed. The specification, classification, and diameter of the tungsten electrode. Okay, so it's more than just saying it's EWTH2. You've got to actually list the, you know, what specification it was made under. Transfer mode, GMAW and FCAW. <clears throat> In some codes, transfer mode is not applicable to FCAW. Some codes it is. Number five at the bottom of the electrical is a change to or from pulsed current. Other variables, 5.19. The welding process, and whether it's mechanical or manual, <coughs> semi-automatic, mechanized, or automatic. So you have to address what type of process it is. <coughs> if it's mechanical or automatic, you've got to also address single or multiple electrodes in spacing. You also have to address whether it's single pass or multi-pass contact tube to work distance. Obviously the contact tube to work distance only applies to GMAW and FCAW. The type of cleaning, 
peening, whether it's a stringer or a weave bead, and the travel speed range for mechanized or automatic welding and manual applications requiring heat input calculations. <coughs> it's kind of odd that the travel speed range is not addressed for SMAW over there. And again, you know, this is just a pretend code, but there are situations where heat input is a required calculation, even though you're doing SMAW. So that kind of gets us through table six. So the next paragraph is paragraph 5.2, procedure qualification variables. Okay, this is, the, this is the guts of verifying that your WPS is properly qualified. Paragraph says a change in a WPS beyond that allowed in this clause shall require requalification of the procedure and preparation of a new or revised WPS. Changes not addressed in this clause shall not require requalification provided such changes are documented in a new or revised WPS. <clears throat> so the test welds that you have to do, 5.2.1, the welding organization shall prepare a sufficient number of qualification test weldments to cover the anticipated processes, materials, thicknesses, etc., as described herein. Each groove, weld, each groove test weldment shall be large enough to provide the necessary test specimens required in 5.3. So I'm going to go ahead and jump down to 5.3 real quick, if you want to jump down there with me. When I go to 5.3, it tells me, evaluation of groove test weldments. Test weldments should be subjected to the following. Visual examination, got to visually inspect it. A guided bend test that consists of either four side bend specimens or two face bend and two root bend specimens. Side bend specimens may be substituted for face and root specimens for metal thicknesses from 3 eighths to 3 quarters inclusive. For metal over 3 quarters of an inch thick, side bend specimens are required. For base metals 3 eighths thick and greater, side bends are also required for GMAW-S, and you should know what the dash S is, short circuit and transfer. So that lets us know what we've got to do in our bend test. <coughs> Tension test, number three, two transverse specimens. Four, CV and fracture toughness if required. Three specimens from the weld metal, three specimens from the heat affected zone, HAZ. Okay, so that's kind of got us to see what the test requirements are. We're going to go ahead and jump back up to the other paragraph that we were reading before. We'll continue on 5.2.1.1. <clears throat> for the welding of base metals with different M numbers, a procedure qualification test shall be made for each combination of M numbers to be joined. However, procedure qualification tests with one M number shall also qualify for that metal welded to itself and to each of the lower M number metals for base metals that are M1, M3, M4, and M5A. <clears throat> there's no M2, uh, just like in some of the other codes, there's no P2. I think in the video last night, or in the, in the audio I did last night, I mentioned M2 base metal. <clears throat> There's not one. Welding processes have to be SMAW, GTAW, GMAW, and FCAW, which are the only ones that are in the book of specifications anyway. It says, as an example, M5A to M5A would qualify for M5A to M5A as well as M5A to M4, M5A to M3, M5A to M1. 
refer to Annex as 3A and 3B for the listings of material metal base of base metal M numbers. So that kind of lets you know what kind of qualification range you can get out of an M number. Uh, 5.2.1.2. If fracture toughness testing is required, the procedure qualification shall be made for each combination, M number and group number, to be joined. <coughs> Notice it said group number also. But that's only if fracture testing, fracture toughness testing is required. The procedure qualification shall be made for each M number and group number com combination of base materials. Even though procedure qualification tests have been made for each of the two base metals welded to itself. So hopefully you understand that that means if I'm going to want to weld some M number 1 to M number 4, that me just having a procedure that's M1 to M1 <coughs> and a procedure that's M4 to M4 does not allow me to uh, use that rule up above where I can do the, do the separate group numbers. Number one below that, if the welding procedure for welding combination of base metals specify the same qualification variables, including electrode or filler metal, as both WPSs for welding each metal to itself, <coughs> such as the base metal is only changed, then the WPS for welding combination of base metals is also qualified. That's, a, that's an exception to what I just read. Uh, the statement before said a procedure qualification shall be made for each M number and group number combination of base metals, even though procedure qualification tests have been made for each of the two base metals welded to itself. But then the exception is below, so this is kind of odd the way they word this in my brain. If the welding procedure, let me say it one more time, if the welding procedure specification for welding the combination of base metals specifies the same qualification variables, including electrode or filler metal, as both WPSs for welding each base metal to itself, such as that the base metal is the only change, the combination of base metals is also qualified. Hmm. Have to think on that even some more. When base metals of two different M numbers and group numbers are qualified using a single test weldment, the test weldment qualifies the welding of those two M numbers and group numbers to themselves, as well as to each other using the variables qualified. So there you go. So if I did want to do dissimilar M numbers to group numbers, I would be able to write a WPS off of them for M number to itself. <coughs> Qualification thickness limitations. Limitations on the thickness ranges qualified procedure qualification tests are given in Table 7. Let's go ahead and jump down there to Table 7 real quick. And the title of it is the thickness limitations of plate and pipe for groove welds for procedure qualification. So if you go over here in the left-hand column, test weldment thickness in inch, uppercase T, typically represents base metal thickness. Read down there to note A since it's up there. The test weldment thickness T is applicable for the base metal and shall be determined from the base metal thickness qualified column. There you go. <clears throat> if it's less than a sixteenth, then the minimum base metal qualified is one half of that thickness. And the maximum is two times that thickness. Go over to the base metal or the weld metal qualified range. You're qualified up to T. 
two times the thickness. I said you're qualified. I hate it when I do that because actually we're talking about a procedure welder. So let's go ahead and look through the notes since they're up there in the headings of the columns. B for GMAWF, the maximum thickness of base metal is 1.1 times the thickness of the test weld until the test weldment thickness is a half inch beyond which table 7 applies. So if you do GMAWS for qualification, the maximum qualified base metal thickness is going to be 1.1 times the thickness of whatever the test weld was, unless that test weld is a half inch. If it's a half inch, then the rest of table 7 applies. It's unusual that it doesn't say half inch or gross. It just explicitly says thickness is half inch. And it uses the word until, which could lead you to believe that <clears throat> as it progresses up, it concludes the other ones, which, you know, I would probably go for that if I was answering a question on the quiz. The maximum weld metal thickness qualified as 1.1 times the GMAW weld metal thickness deposit in the weldment in addition to thickness for thicknesses 3 eighths of an inch and greater, side bend tests shall be used to qualify GMAWS WPSs. So that's a repeat of what we'd already seen in one place. <clears throat> C, for fracture toughness applications, the minimum base metal thickness is T or 5 eighths, whichever is less. If any single pass in the test weldment base metal is greater in thickness than 1 half inch, the qualified base metal thickness is 1.1 times the test weldment thickness. So, you know, that's actually a a variable that's kind of related to your technique and to your process, but we'll see if it's down there in table eight or not. And then E, if a test weldment receives a post-weld heat treatment exceeding the lower transformation temperature, the maximum base metal thickness qualified is 1.1 times the base metal for the test weld. And the maximum weld thickness qualified is 1.1 times the weld metal of the test weldment. Note F. For base metals equal to or less than 3 eighths, fillet welds have the same base metal thickness qualification as groove welds. For base metal thickness greater than 3 eighths, the maximum base metal thickness qualified for fillet welds is unlimited. So if a procedure was done on some material that was 3 eighths of an inch, then the maximum base metal thickness would only be 3 quarters. If it was done on material that was 7 sixteenths, then for fillet welds, the qualified thickness would be unlimited. No, G, deposit weld melt thickness limitations do not apply to fillet welds or weld buildups. Okay. I'm just going to see what the other notes say below that. It just tells us what the uppercase and the lowercase t is. So that's about 17 minutes of me reading through this thing. We're not going to go through table 8 right now. But that's kind of got you some, some things you to, to think about. Have a good one.